I want you to take your Bibles with me and turn to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, to Matthew chapter 5. What we're going to do tonight, which I'm uh, so pleased, so excited to announce, is that we are going to begin a a series of sermons uh, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm uh, very, very delighted to have this opportunity. This is something that I've, I've wanted to do for a while, and I just felt that this, this was the time uh, to do so. Uh, just to clear some things up, because I had someone ask me this morning, uh, John is going to continue to be preaching through First uh, John, so he's going to keep uh, working through that text, and, and I'm going to be spending my time here just so there's no uh, confusion. And uh, to begin our service, I think it's appropriate to listen to God speak, so I want to invite you, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Just start reading here in chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, Father, we come before you in the name of, of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we just thank you for every good, true, eternal, undefiled, imperishing, everlasting spiritual blessing that you've uh, given to your children here, dear God, to the praise of, of your glorious grace. Father, not a one of us deserves the, the, the kindness and the mercy that you continue to show us every day. And, and, and let us always be humbled by that. Let us always be thankful for that, dear God. Father, I just pray that as we begin this series of sermons working through the most blessed and, and heavenly discourse uh, given to us uh, by your Son, dear God. I just pray that by means of your Spirit that we would be ministered to by your Word. I pray that the saints here in this fellowship, in this congregation, would be edified, would be strengthened. Dear God, I pray that the truth of your Word would be made clear. I pray that the truth of your word would be honored. And above all, dear God, I just pray that as we worship and as we gather, that all we do would be acceptable in thy sight. I pray that your name would be hallowed, that it would be honored, that it would be glorified. And all that we do from the singing to the preaching to the fellowship. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we read there. The beginning of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth 
and taught them, saying. As I already mentioned, we are going to begin a, a series of expository sermons on the most blessed sermon preached by the one true God, Lord, and Savior, Jesus Christ, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew's Gospel account. Because of the profound nature of this sermon, and, and especially in light of the many ways in which this section of Scripture has been utterly abused and, and mishandled, I have found it necessary in my own heart to, uh, before we really get into the, the meat, get into the content of the matter, that we would take this opportunity tonight to just give us an introduction, give us some uh, ground rules to operate by. These are the teachings and words of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created. And in a glorious display of his condescending mercy, he has taken the form of his own creation and he freely decides to set himself up on a mountain to communicate to his creation. Now that's a wonderful thing. Now that's a wonderful thing to think about. I was recently listening to a dialogue between a Christian theologian and a Christian scientist and they were talking about just some of the incredible uh, things that they've discovered about how the world and how the universe operates and, and the complexity of it all. And, and there are just, you know, just so many amazing things about, about the natural world that we live in, which, you know, we are just now discovering for the first time. And, and, and I just can't help but think, you know, I, the one who created this all, who made it all, who made human beings found it within his heart to glorify himself by condescending to our level and revealing himself to us. I was uh, heard uh, listening a few days ago um, an old recording of, of a man by the name of uh, Christopher Hitchens, who if you're not familiar with that man's name, he was considered, while he was still alive, one of the four horsemen of, of a new atheism movement. And uh, during one of his talks in which he was mocking the Christian faith, which is, if you've ever listened to him, was really mostly what he did. There's never really any substantial or meaningful argumentation, uh, just a lot of mockery. But, but I heard him say at the one point, you know, you know, God creates the earth and then he just you know, just sits back and, then, and he just waits for thousands of years and then he arbitrarily decides to speak to Moses or arbitrarily decides to speak uh, through his son. And what Hitchens doesn't understand is for God to reveal, or did not understand, he's no longer with us, what he didn't understand is it's that we don't deserve to have God speak to us. We don't deserve his revelation. As, as many theologians have said, when God speaks to us, it, it's, it's a condescension on his part. It's a, it, it's a reflection of his mercy, of his good character. That people who are at enemy with him, people who are in rebellion against them, who, you know, it, the, the things, the, the existence and the attributes of God, the scripture says, are, are, are plain 
to anyone. Because God makes these things known to us in general revelation in the created world. The Bible says that as we look at nature, as we look at the things around us, that that in and of itself is enough to tell us that there is a God and that we ought to worship him. But what do sinners with hardened hearts do? We reject that and we suppress it. And we suppress it. And so when God does speak to us, that is a reflection of of his mercy, that he is acting in time so as to redeem a particular and a peculiar people for himself, for his own glory. And my friends, there is no more greater shining example of the condescension of God than in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. For you had the scriptures that were given to the Hebrew people, the Tanakh. And yet, Jesus Christ is said to be the Word incarnate. That not only is God speaking to his creation, but he's taking the form of his creation. And that's a wonderful thing. And and in the incarnation, Jesus Christ gives us what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. You have the one through whom the very mountains were made and established. There he sits upon a mountain, talking to creatures, talking to human beings. It's absolutely glorious. And yet, that is what all Scripture is. It's not just the red letters that are important and we can ignore everything else. No. Paul says all Scripture is theonustos, that is, God-breathed. Peter calls it a prophetic word, more fully confirmed. So as we begin this discourse through the Sermon on the Mount, I just want you to think about this, that as you hold the Scriptures in your hand and as we go through them, the very Scriptures in your hands are the very communications of God Almighty to His people. And that's a a wonderful thing, and it's for that reason that this discourse, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, must be handled with utmost care and precision. It must be treated reverentially, as though it were the Word of God, because it is the Word of God. And and so that's why we're doing what we're doing tonight. Instead of just... uh, rushing in like, like a bull in a china shop and just going in head first and, and, and digging through Jesus' words here, we're going to take the time tonight to, to have a conversation about how we are going to approach this. Now, I will admit that what we're going to do tonight is going to feel a little bit more like a lecture, perhaps, than a sermon. But I trust that if you stick with me tonight and you listen to what I have to say, and and I would suggest taking notes and keeping those notes, that when we move into the matter of the content of Jesus' teaching, that you will be better equipped to be ministered to by the Word of God because you've taken the time to consider how it is that we're going to go about this. And so before we get into some of that, I just want to make some comments on on the two verses I read earlier, that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, there was 
uh, one Puritan who, who made the comment, you know, here Christ takes the mountain for his pulpit, and he takes the whole law of God as his text. And that's what he's going to be doing. And so you can ask the question, why? You know, why consider the Sermon on the Mount? That seems like a pretty rudimentary question to ask. Okay, like, well, why are, are we doing what we're doing here? And I would suppose that the reason why is pretty well summed up in some of the things that I've said before. You know, this is, in fact, the very Word of God. It, it is God speaking to us. But you also know that I maintain the rather unpopular opinion and position that all Scripture is God-breathed. Okay, I, I believe that Old and New Testaments, Genesis to Revelation, I believe that it's all Scripture. I believe it's all God-breathed. I am one of those crazy radicals who believes that Leviticus and Deuteronomy are Scripture too. So you could say that the reason we are doing this series of sermons is simply because of the fact that this is Scripture, and in the New Testament, the church is commanded to practice and observe the preaching and teaching of Scripture. But the question is, why the Sermon on the Mount? You know, if, if, if it's all God-breathed, why this and why not some other book? Well, my answer would involve the fact that though all Scripture is, is equally true and equally inspired by God, not all Scripture is of the same necessity. To give you an illustration, the fact that in Mark chapter 6, verse 39, it says that the grass was green, is that's not as necessary a truth as the fact that John 1, 1 says Jesus is God. Now, both things are equally true in respect to the fact that both things are inspired of God. They're equally true based upon the authority giving us the information. If someone were to try and deny the fact that when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, the grass was green, well, he, he would be wrong. He would be standing in direct opposition to the very word of God to try and say that the grass had turned brown due to heat or that it was covered with snow or something like that. Now, I admit it, it'd be a strange thing for someone to argue about, but nevertheless, someone who denies that the grass was green in Mark chapter 6 is wrong because the text says the grass is green. But someone who denies that Jesus is God, as John 1, 1 says, is not only wrong, but has committed a deadly and damnable heresy. Because though Mark 6.39 and John 1.1 1, 1 are equally true, John 1.1 1, 1 is of a higher necessity. You could say perhaps a more important thing to believe. And so with this consideration in mind, why then have I chosen the Sermon on the Mount? Why do I feel that at this particular moment in our lives, the Sermon on the Mount is of such a high level of necessity that it ought to be preached rather than some other text. Well, aside from the fact that I, I, I just personally am so troubled by how this precious sermon is mistreated by so many, and, and we will address those errors as well, the main reason that I feel led by the Holy Spirit of God to preach through this sermon of Jesus is because I believe that this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, 
contains for us the very foundation of the Christian life. I believe, and I'm going to make this assertion, and I believe that I will prove this assertion as we go through the series. I believe that the Sermon on the Mount answers for us this question. What is a Christian? You say, well, I already know the answer to that. Uh, A Christian is someone who confesses Jesus as Lord. Really? That's what a Christian is, huh? Well, then how come at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus will say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, in that statement of Jesus, it is assumed that those who enter the kingdom of heaven are addressing him as Lord. But you see, Jesus says that not everyone who merely says those words is going to enter the kingdom. So so the, the astonishing words of Jesus are that just because you confess him as Lord, it's not enough to guarantee that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. Well, what is Jesus saying there? Who does go to heaven? Well, that's why I said the Sermon on the Mount answers for us this question. Who is a Christian? What is a Christian? What do they look like? There is a reason that those words of Jesus come at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. To understand those words properly, we have to start at the beginning and work through it. For me to just take those words in Matthew chapter 7 and rip them out of their context and preach to you this wonderful hellfire and brimstone um, discourse without placing those words in the proper context would be wrong. That would be an error. And so because of the fact that this sermon is answering the question of who is a Christian, this makes it an extremely important matter to address. My friends... No more important question could be asked of you than this. Are you a Christian? And because of the fact that I believe a proper understanding of the Sermon on the Mount will reveal the answer of that question to us, at the present moment, I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is the portion of Scripture we need to address. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, no man should preach unless he believes he has a message from the Lord. Well, Beloved, I believe that the message God wants us to hear is in the words of his son found in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not in some external revelation. It's not in a TV show. It's not in any of these things. It's in his word. That's where he put the power. And so before we get into this, we need to um, address something. There are a lot of different views, a lot of different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. And and so a good question to ask would be, well, what are some of these different views? That question is another reason why I I feel such a strong desire to preach through the sermon. Because there are so many different views, so many different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. There was one scholar who, I think in the 1970s or 80s, estimated that there were 36 different interpretations that he could find of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Now, in the postmodern world that you and I live in, that fact alone would cause many preachers to want to distance themselves from this text. That would cause many preachers to want to avoid it. We live in a day and age in which to have disagreements with others can't go there. Can't go there. That's considered blasphemy. Why? Well, because the God of this culture is the autonomous self. Every person is their own God, and they have the right to define reality for themselves. Now, as a Christian, I have to reject that mindset. As Martin Luther said, to take no pleasure in assertions is not the mark of a Christian heart. Indeed, one must delight in assertions to be a Christian at all. So like I said, there are an insane amount of different views on the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not going to address them all. That, would, I, I, that I think, would be a waste of our time. Uh, it would take far too much time, and, and quite frankly, I mean, some of these interpretations are just, just ludicrous. I mean, they don't even deserve to be mentioned alongside the truth. And, uh, you know, that, what I just said right there, that, that's another unpopular thing to say. But the reality is this, that not all opinions and interpretations and views on matters of religion are equally valid. Why is that? Well, because we have a revelation from God. And so we have a standard, okay? We, we, we have a canon, we have a set rule by which to go. And so I'm not going to bother with all of these different views. There are, uh, I'm just going to briefly examine three that I think would be most relevant to the church. Like I said, I know that what we're doing tonight is, is more of a lecture than it is a sermon. I'm up here just instructing you and giving you information, uh, but, but, but I do think this is important. And so it, it is my intention to uh, communicate the things that would be most relevant uh, to the average Christian in the pews. So I'm just going to address the three views that would be most common or, or most relevant to the average Christian person, and then what I'm sure you'll all be waiting for, I'll tell you where I stand on the matter. The way that these three views are distinct from one another is in how each of these views deals with the moral content of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, if my assertion is correct that the Sermon on the Mount answers the question of what is a Christian, then these are things which are relevant not just to scholars or to commentators and, and for people who are really into theology. These are things which are important for every single person. Okay, whether you're a mother or a father or a school teacher or a carpenter or an office worker or, or, or a child or whoever you are, you need to give very careful consideration to how we should interpret the moral content of the Sermon on the Mount. So the first of these views, which in my estimation is, is the least worthy, would be what we would call the dispensational view. The dispensational view asserts that the moral content of the Sermon on the Mount is so impossibly high, meaning you could never perfectly obey and follow Jesus' teachings here in this life, and so the Sermon on the Mount is, is only really relevant 
and will only be idealized in a, a future millennial kingdom for the Jews. Now, I, I don't want to misrepresent people. There are many dispensationalist teachers who you know, would still say that the Sermon on the Mount is something that Christians should look to for moral guidance, but nevertheless, they still hold the teaching that the Sermon on the Mount will you know, not be manifested in anyone's lives until a future millennial kingdom. Now, I reject this view for two reasons. Uh, one, I believe that the kingdom of God is a, is a present reality. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Luke chapter 17, Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he proved that by the, the miracles that he was working. And after Jesus' resurrection, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I believe that Jesus is king, and I believe he is king now. He is reigning, and he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. But secondly, uh, in verses 1 through 2 in chapter 5, it says Jesus was teaching these things to his disciples, to his followers. You see, Jesus' words were meant for their consideration. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is not only relevant to a future millennial kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is relevant to believers, to followers in Christ. The second view, which I actually think has a grain of truth in it, but I think it's incomplete, uh, would be what I would call the Lutheran view. I am calling it that because this was the view of Martin Luther. Essentially, Luther held that the moral content of the Sermon on the Mount was so impossibly high and, and unattainable that he believed the chief purpose of the sermon was to expose man's depravity and, and sinfulness and drive him to repentance and faith. It would be applied like this. So in chapter 5, Jesus says, Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that, you know, Jesus says you should tear out your right eye, you should cut out your right hand if they're causing you to sin. And Luther would say the point of this is that the sinful man should recognize that he does not have the capacity within himself to perfectly obey this, and realizing his inability to obey Jesus' commands, he should cry out to God for grace and for mercy. Now, I actually think that's true, but I don't think it's complete. I believe that anyone looking at the Sermon on the Mount should recognize immediately their own sinfulness and their own weakness. But remember my earlier assertion. The Sermon on the Mount is answering this question. What is a Christian? No, I, I don't think that in this life any believer could hope to perfectly obey Jesus' commands not to lust or any of the other moral commands in the sermon. But I do believe that they are genuine commands. I do believe that when Jesus tells his Disciples, that's very important. Notice Jesus is not teaching these things on the city streets. He's not teaching these things to uh, non-believers. Okay, he is 
primarily addressing his followers when he's telling them to avoid the sin of lust, that there is an actual, genuine, real instruction that believers should strive to be obedient to. That brings me to the third view, which is the view that I would hold, and it's going to be what I will call the Reformed view, or the biblical view. I'm calling it this because I believe that you will find that the majority of, of Reformed uh, thinkers and theologians are going to be articulating similar things to, to me. While we would affirm with Luther that the moral content of the sermon should immediately make known to us our need and our dependence upon a perfect Savior to save us from our sin, to save us from our disobedience, and while nobody could ever hope in this life to perfectly obey the Sermon on the Mount, that nevertheless, Jesus does intend his teachings here to be an aid or a guide for how Christians should live their lives. But the reason this is the case, and this is so, I can't even tell you how important this thing I'm about to say is. The reason this is the case is because of the Reformed doctrine of regeneration, which means to be given new life. Reformed theologians teach that before someone can come to faith in Jesus Christ, that God must give them a new nature, that they must be born again, for they can see the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus says in John 3. It's because a natural man is dead in his trespasses and sin. He's hostile towards God. He does not want God. He is not seeking God. He wants nothing to do with God. He wants nothing to do with God's law. He does not want to believe in Jesus. Not that he can't do anything. He can do all sorts of things. It's that he only wants to do that which is evil. He doesn't want to believe in Jesus because he prefers his sin. But you see, God, in his mercy saves sinners by granting them a new nature, by quickening them with the Holy Ghost so that they will then desire to submit to him and believe in Jesus. And so if that's the case, it means that every single person who is a genuine and true Christian is a person who has been given new life. They have been changed. They are a new creation in Christ Jesus. They've been born again. And so the wonderful thing to consider as it relates to the Sermon on the Mount is that since Jesus is primarily teaching these things to his disciples, the moral content of the sermon is not intended for the natural man to obey. Why? He can't obey it. He doesn't want to obey it. Jesus intends his message to be heard, received, and obeyed by Christians by people with a new nature who have been given a new birth by God, who God has taken out that heart of stone and given them a heart of flesh. Because of this reality of the new birth, people with a new nature, the Christian, will not only have the desire to be obedient to Christ's commands, but by God's grace and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he actually can obey them, not perfectly, as I've already observed. But if you are a Christian, 
Jesus actually intends for you to strive to be obedient to his words in the Sermon on the Mount. I would just also emphasize with Luther that as you live your Christian life, you should constantly be recognizing uh, because of your own weakness and your own inability to do the things which you want to do, like Paul says in Romans 7, you have a constant need to be dependent upon the grace of God. And so, with that being said, what are some pitfalls to avoid in our interpretation? Having briefly laid out for you what the Reformed view is and the interpretive lens through which I will be addressing this sermon, I want to also point out some ways in which this sermon can and has been misused and abused. There are some things that we need to avoid doing as we progress through this sermon series. So in light of the fact that the sermon is answering the question, what is a Christian, that the moral content of the sermon is intended for people who've been regenerated, who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we must never use the Sermon on the Mount as some kind of strict legalistic code for how to obtain righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, We are not told in the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will become a Christian, but rather we are told, because you are a Christian, live like this. The other part of that would be the moral commands of the Sermon on the Mount are intending to teach us spiritual principles about who Christian people are, and they are not to be taken and Allow me to explain what I'm about to say before you get mad at me. The moral commands of the Sermon on the Mount are not intended to be taken as literal commands. Now, I say this very carefully. I say this reverentially, but I believe it to be true. The moral commands of the Sermon on the Mount are not to be taken literally. Right away, as soon as I say that, there would be people who would just want to get into an absolute uproar. I mean, what are, what are you saying? It's like, are, what, are you a heretic? Do you, do you not believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God? Well, nevertheless, the fact that I started off tonight's sermon by telling you that, yes, I believe all of Scripture is theonustos, God-breathed, with the Apostle Paul, uh, I, I do believe this is the word of God and that it should be taken as such. And as a matter of fact, I have never met a Christian who disagreed with me that the moral commands of the Sermon on the Mount should not be taken literally. You say, what do you mean? I'll prove it to you. Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm not asking you to say anything. Don't look around. But just ask this to yourself. If you are a Christian here tonight, ask yourself this question. Have you ever looked just merely looked, not even acted upon, not even made any effort to follow through on this. But have you ever looked at another human being who was not your spouse and lusted at them? If you have, 
ask yourself this next question. Why have you not gouged out your right eye? Remember, Jesus says if your right eye causes you to sin, to gouge it out, get rid of it. But the very, the very fact that you have not done that proves to me that you do not believe that's a literal command. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a true command, that it's not a relevant command, or that it's not the word of God. Remember, as a, form, as a Reformed Christian, I already told you, I believe that the moral commands are real commands that should be obeyed by Christians. So then the question is this. If these are real commands that Christians are actually supposed to obey, yet they are not to be taken strictly, literally, in that sense, how are we supposed to interpret these commands? Well, I think the answer can be summed up like this. We are to be obedient to the spirit of the law, not merely the letter of the law. And in order to accomplish this, one must be led by the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit who Paul says is the Lord. This is going to be something that comes up over and over again as we go through the sermon series. Why is that? Because it is on this very point that, the, that Jesus faults the scribes and the Pharisees for how they handled the law of Moses. They looked only to the letter of the law. They gave no consideration for the Spirit that inspired the law. Since it's, I've already brought this example up, I'll just keep using it to keep things simple. Uh, consider, once again, Jesus' teaching on the sin of lust. He said, You have heard it said to them of old time, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What was Jesus saying there? The Pharisees looked at the law of Moses and they saw that adultery was prohibited. Very well. But they erred in this respect. They erred in that they only sought to obey the letter of that law and not the spirit thereof. You see, they thought that by avoiding the literal physical act of adultery, they were doing pretty good. They thought themselves pretty righteous because they had never laid down with, with a woman who was not their wife, who they were not married to. Well, very well. But according to Jesus, that's missing the point. It's missing the point. The point of the law against adultery was not merely that the physical act of adultery was wrong, but it was to reveal God's anger against the very lustful heart which desires to commit adultery. That's why Jesus says it doesn't matter if you've never personally lied down with a woman you weren't married to. It is the desire within you to do such a thing that God hates and which is sin. Adultery is a wicked and horrible sin, but the only reason adultery happens is because of the wicked and sinful heart that craves and desires adultery. Jesus by exposing not just the letter of the law, but by the Spirit as well, shows us that how God wants Christians to live goes beyond the physical acts of the flesh. God is concerned about our hearts. Now, you've heard me say that many times if, if you listen to my teaching and preaching. God is concerned about our hearts. 
one of my favorite volumes that's sitting on my shelf right now is, is a book by Joel Beakey uh, called A Puritan Theology. And the subtitle thereof is, is Doctrine for Life. Why do I say this? Well, Scripture knowledge, having entered our minds, is not merely to stay there. It's to seep down into our hearts, cause a change in here, which then creates a changed life. You see, just to take a command in Scripture against adultery or lust, for instance, and to only go about that by addressing your flesh is wrong. You're not going to succeed. You need to address the heart. You need to address the heart. And so as we study the Sermon on the Mount, we don't want to make the same mistake the Pharisees made with the Old Testament law that Jesus condemned them for. You see, if we looked at Jesus' teaching on looking with lust, and we decided, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go anywhere or expose myself to any media where there might be a chance I would see a person whom I might lust after. Now, look, that in and of itself would not be a bad thing, obviously. But doing that alone would not be obeying Jesus here. You see, you know, if, if, if a young man were to, say, avoid going to the beach or avoid watching certain movies or, or whatever it is, all you're doing is addressing your flesh you're just limiting the exposure that your eyes might have to people whom you might lust after, but doing that alone would not be enough because, first of all, you wouldn't even succeed. I mean, just, just, just logically think about that. To do that, you would have to lock yourself in a bunker someplace and never escape. And as all of us in this room have probably felt at one point or another a desire to lock ourselves in a bunker and, and never go back to the outside world, uh, we can't do that. It's, uh, it's not an option for Christians. The monasteries um, of old time that are associated with the Roman Catholic Church with, with the monks and with the nuns, you see, they were wrong for this very reason. They thought that the height of spiritual discipline, the height of spiritual life, was to completely separate yourself from this world and, and, and deprive yourself of earthly pleasures, whether they're sinful or not. Uh, look, it's not an option for the Christian. Why? Well, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount here. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that we need to be salt of the earth, that we need to be the light of the world. Well, in order to do that, you've got to be in the earth. You've you, you got to be in the world. And also, uh, for the Christian person, and I hope that people listening online would, would pay attention to this, in Scripture we are commanded to congregate with a local body of believers. So to close yourself off in, in a bunker somewhere and avoid any potential contact with another human being would not only be impossible, but if you found a way to do it, it'd be anti-biblical. It'd be anti-biblical. It would be a sinful thing to do. It'd be an unchristian thing to do. So in order 
to obey Jesus' command, not to lust. You cannot go about it by seeking merely to, to, to limit the opportunities that your flesh has to do so. You need to address your heart. You, you must address your heart. That's why I emphasize again the Reformed understanding of this section of Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount is for Christians. It says right here in verse 1, He sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. He taught his disciples. Go and tell the natural man not to look at another woman with lust. His immediate response, if he's consistent, will be to ask you why. I mean, from, from a, a materialist, atheistic worldview, what does it even matter? I, I mean, what reason would he have even to think that lust is something to be avoided? But aside from that, even if you somehow convinced this guy that it would be a bad thing for him to lust or to look at other people with lust, he would have no power to do so. He wouldn't be able to do it. In order to, in order to do what I'm instructing us to do, remember, Scripture is to influence our hearts. We need to address the heart, not the flesh. Guess what? As much as I want to, with certain people I know, God has not given me the ability to reach in to a fellow human being, a fellow creature, and fix their heart, to change it out, and to, and to give them new life. I can't do that. I can't do that. You know who can do that? The Holy Spirit. God, and God alone, has the power to change hearts. So, the, the person who is going to even begin to make an attempt to obey Jesus' command against lust first needs to be regenerated and led by the Spirit of God. Therefore, I will reiterate the point. As, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we cannot strictly look at the letter of the law, but we must examine the Spirit that is behind it. Uh, I, I was telling Brother John about something that, 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 I was, that I was reading this morning on, on the internet. And uh, it's something that, that you know, I, I've heard before, and it's, it's, it's not something that can really stand up against any refutation. There are you know, people who, who would criticize doctrine, who would criticize theology, and say, that's just, just a waste of time. I, I mean, don't bother with the Apostle Paul and Romans chapter 1 through 11 and, and, and this just tapestry that he masterfully weaves or he talks about the sinfulness of the Gentiles and he looks at the Jews and say, what, you think that you're better off just because you have the oracles of God? And then he points to them that's not the case and he, and he describes the universal sinfulness of man and then he, in, in, in great majesty and grace, he 
in chapters 3 and 4 brings in the truth about justification by faith. And in Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And in Romans 6, how do our, in 7, addressing the sin in our lives. And Romans 8 and 9, talking about the, 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 the sovereign wonder of God who alone has the authority to change hearts and to bring people salvation and it's not of the one who wills it's not of the one who runs it's of God who has mercy in chapter 10 therefore whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and it's just this it's just so great and these people go don't worry about them that's I mean that that that's a waste of time let's just focus on you know the life of Jesus and then the moral teachings of Jesus and, uh, you know, it's like most of these people think the life and morality of Jesus is just equivalent to, to like, Bernie Sanders or something. They, they just got this totally skewed view of things, and, and it leads to problems. It leads to error. Bad theology, bad doctrine hurts people. Why? Well, look, if you told somebody to obey Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount but you never explain to them the doctrines of justification by faith or perseverance of the saints or regeneration or these different things, that person would go insane. They would literally go insane. Why? Because in order to live a godly and Christian life and be obedient to Jesus' teachings, you need to understand the doctrine and the theology behind that. You need to understand justification by faith. You need to understand a regeneration. You need to understand these things intellectually, have them applied to your heart, so that then you can live the Christian life. If you divorce the two, you're going to fail. Look, if you go all doctrine, all theology, and you never talk about the practicalities thereof, look, you're in error. But if you only talk about the practical teachings of Scripture, what are you doing? You're moving into legalism. You're moving into legalism. You're obeying the letter of the law. You're ignoring the spirit behind it. That's what the Pharisees did, and that's what Jesus condemned them for. So the next potential pitfall that we need to avoid in our interpretation, and I will confess that this sadly is the most common thing we will run into, is taking portions of this sermon out of its context and making application based off of that. The passage that I quoted to you at the beginning of tonight's message in, in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, You know, many will say unto him, Lord, Lord, uh, but Jesus says that only those doing the will of his Father will inherit the kingdom. You know, I, I've had Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox people, you know, mention this passage as a way to refute the biblical teaching of justification by faith that we're saved by grace alone, which is the gift of God and not of our works. Well, look, it's my assertion that those who are using that passage in that way are ignoring the entire context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is already mentioned. It's answering the question of what is a Christian. So we can't do that. If, if I wrote you a letter or, or, or sent you a text message and you just took one statement of it and ignored everything else I said, I would literally wonder what was wrong with you. Because that's what people do to God's word. And so you will also hear rank atheists and non-believers quoting the Sermon on the Mount to you in a way that is just completely unwarranted. 
Probably the most well-known Bible verse, other than John 3.16, comes from the Sermon on the Mount, and it's in Matthew 7.1, where Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Now, if you're having a conversation with a non-believer, as soon as you make the statement that something is wrong or something is sinful or, or that a person you know, must believe in Jesus to be saved, you know, if you say something like that, no matter how much biblical argumentation you bring behind it, you will immediately be met with, well, you know, Jesus said, judge not, at least you'd be judged. And uh, as Paul Washer said, yeah, well, twist not scripture, at least you go to hell. And here's what we need to understand. When Jesus says, judge not, at least you be judged, he was not saying, don't have any opinions at all. Don't, don't, don't have any opinions or views that might be binding on someone else's life. Remember what Luther said earlier. Someone who does not delight in assertions does not have the mark of the Christian heart. Why? Because as Christian people, we confess and profess an exclusive message. I understand that we live in the age of diversity and inclusion. The Christian message is, not, it, it, it is inclusive in a sense that all people are invited, but it is exclusive in that only people who are Christians, people who believe in Jesus, and have been regenerated and dwelt with the Spirit of God. So yes, so we preach a message that is exclusive and which is binding on other people's lives. And something that needs to be taken into consideration. Now, if you're having a conversation with someone and they say to you, judge not, at least you be judged. Calmly, respectfully, lovingly say to them, well, that's Matthew 7, 1 that you just quoted. Are you aware of what Matthew 7, 6 says? I will guarantee you, the majority of people you're talking to will have no idea what Matthew 7, 6 says. And the reason is, they didn't know that they were quoting Matthew 7, 1. They had a, had a phrase, they had a sentence that they wanted to use for their own purposes, completely ignoring the context in which it was made. So what am I saying? Well, in Matthew 7, 6, Jesus tells us not to give dogs what is holy or cast pearls before swine. Now, in order to obey that commandment, remember the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount are real commandments, okay? In order to obey that, we need to exercise judgment. We need to be able to judge another person as to whether or not this person is a dog, is a dog or a pig and whether or not we ought to give them that which is holy or cast our pearls before them. So in verse 1, Jesus says, judge not. But in verse 6, he tells us to judge. What's going on here? Now, look, the Bible does not contradict itself. So what, 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 what does it mean when verse 1 says this and verse 6 says something else? It means that we need to know what verses 2 through 5 say. Seems rather obvious to me. But obviously... Most people don't, don't seem to, to practice that. Once again, if I, if I sent you a text message that was a paragraph long, and you read the first sentence and stopped right there and just ignored everything else that I had to say, 
I wouldn't be really happy about that. Likewise, if you did that to me, and I just read the first thing you said and ignored everything else, you would literally wonder what was wrong with me. And yet that's what people do to God's word. That's what people do to God's word. So with that being said, it is important that we recognize not to take any of these verses out of context and the way we're going to go about that is by going verse by verse through this sermon in the way Matthew wrote it. Now, this, this isn't in my notes here, but I'll just point out there are those who would hold the view that the Sermon on the Mount is not one unified discourse, but that what it is is, is just a selection and an arrangement of Jesus' important teachings. And, uh, you know, my favorite theologian... John Calvin, that was his view. Well, I have to disagree with him there because the way that Matthew presents this is as a unified discourse in which we need to follow the flow of the argumentation and understand the message that is being told to us. How are we going to do that? We're going to start at the beginning, work our way through the end, as it should be done. So, how... In what sense, in what way are we going to approach such a holy discourse? Like I said at the, at the beginning, I, I am, I'm aware that what we're doing right now with tonight's message is that this probably feels more like a lecture than a sermon because I'm not just expositing a text of scripture. I'm sort of giving us interpretive principles and things like that, and uh, so what that is right there is that's, that's the intellectual side of how we're going to do this, how we're going to interpret things. But before I close tonight's message, I want to address the uh, spiritual side of how we're going to approach this. Remember, Scripture truth is not just for our heads. It's not just for our minds. It's for our hearts as well. Hearts as well. Doctrine for life. And so... Here's something that I think we need to think about. Many Christians feel when they come to church on Sunday or they come to a meeting like this, may feel like, like I'm not really growing, like, like I'm not really receiving anything of value. Perhaps it's because they're not being given anything of value, I have to concede. But we should always ask ourselves this question. For every Lord's Day, before, before every sermon that you hear, you ask yourself this question. Have I prepared my heart to be ministered to by the Word of God? Have I prayed that God would remove distractions from my life and that the Spirit would illuminate truth to me? If Tonight's message that I gave you, an introductory discourse on how we we're going to handle the Sermon on the Mount, if what we did tonight was boring to you, if it felt dry, if it was a waste of your time, like you should have just stayed home and watched Netflix instead or The Chosen and instead, perhaps it's because I preached a really boring message. I mean, that's always possible. I can't act like that's not an option. Maybe, I, maybe it was. Could be the case. But perhaps the reason you were bored tonight is because before you came here, you didn't take the time to prepare your heart. 
Now, if you came here tonight uh, wishing to be entertained, you've clearly never listened to my preaching before, and you wasted your time. Uh, you really did. I, I, I got no desire to entertain you. It's just not, it's nowhere in here. And, and so, you know, when next week comes around, if your desire is to be entertained, sit home. Just do yourself a favor. Just sit home. Keep the TV at a nice volume. Make yourself something to drink. Get your popcorn or whatever it is. Just, just relax. Just, uh, because if that's what you want, it's to be entertained, you're not, not going to find it here. And so what I want to say is the people here tonight who were listening to the things that I had to say who were not bored, who were interested in what I had to say, it was probably because they did take the time to prepare their hearts. And when I'm talking to a person who's a child of God, and I'm explaining to them, you know, how it is that we're going to address Jesus' words, how it is that we're going to do this, they're going to be paying very careful attention. They're going to be hanging on my every word. Why? Because they hunger for the word of God. And, and the word of God rightly interpreted, and the word of God rightly divided. They didn't come here to be entertained. They came here to hear the voice of the shepherd. And, and, and so my discourse, my, my lecture, whatever it is that you want to call what we did here tonight, I believe that for those people who are true seekers of divine truth, that this was not a waste of our time, this was not boring, and, and, and I would hope that you are as excited and, and thrilled as I am to know that, Lord willing, if, if he should allow, we are going to be spending our time together as Christians, sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, listening to what he has to say. I am so thankful and I am so blessed to have the opportunity to study these words in private and come before you and minister them to you. Would you close with me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we just thank you for your love. We thank you for, for your attributes. We thank you for who you are, dear God. We thank you for your person, for your grace, and for your glory. Lord, you've looked at undeserving sinners like us, and you've renewed us. You've given us new life. You've taken out that heart of stone and given a heart of flesh. You've caused us to be born from above. You've sealed us with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, dear God. We are just so thankful for that. Father God, we just pray that we would use our lives as Christians, as followers of Christ who have been given a new nature, who have been made a new creation, and that we would use our lives for the purpose of advancing your kingdom and, and bringing glory to your name. I just pray that as I go through the sermon here, the Sermon on the Mount, and as I am studying the words of your Son, and as I am taking the words of your son and, son and standing here in, in the pulpit and, and preaching to your spiritual children, dear God, I just pray that I would be empowered with the Spirit of Christ to help illuminate these things to me, to, to rightly understand them, to rightly minister to them. And I pray that the truth of your word would find a resting place in all of my hearers. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.